Hello, and welcome to the Podcast. Podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Bernie Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 43rd episode of the Nauticast, entitled, Life is Not a Song? It's not? I guess it's not. An analysis of a Game of Thrones, Sansa 3, in which Sansa Stark gets creeped on by Littlefinger, fights with Arya, and then makes an unwitting breakthrough for Ned in his investigation. This episode is brought to you by our small council, as always, our head of the king, Wolfman Zack, Grand Maester Timothy W., Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master of Whisperers, Jancy O., Lady Commander of the Night's Watch, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, and our newest member of the small council, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws. Welcome, Lord Philip, and vroom vroom for another six years. Congrats, and thanks for what you do, man. Thank you, counselors, as always, and welcome, Lord Philip. Thank you so much. Our spoiler wing, as we say in all books, we'll be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, the TV show. Anything and everything. So we're going to do a little something different for this time for the question, as it was requested by a few of you. <laughs> Our friend Matt, a.k.a. Joe Magician, a.k.a. Joe the Magician, as he's known around here. <laughs> Had a poll designed to start fights as he is wont to do on Twitter. Here's the question. Pick one thing you would be okay removing from A Song of Ice and Fire. And gave his possible answers. Magic, politics, battles, or myths and legends. And my head off to Matt here because that is a wonderful (laughs) fire starter of a question. I was truly in awe of his ability to make everyone hate each other with this. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things where I'm looking and just scrolling through like 70 80 replies from people just and these massive like thread long fights that last for like four or five days going on it was great it was great it was, it was good to see everybody fighting here because that's what i really want in the song of ice and fire community dissension argument criticism and personal attacks that's what makes me feel happy deep down inside that is jeff's brand and it fills him up every morning and puts him to sleep every night Absolutely. so keep it up folks great question to think about what's most important a Song of Ice and Fire to try to imagine the series in a radically different fashion. But yeah, it's mostly just fun to find out that all your friends have terrible opinions. <laughs> and this is something I had to find out to my distress because Magic Magic won the poll. I'm pretty sure I know Magic was winning the poll while I was observing it. But yeah, the, the plurality of people selected you could get have a Song of Ice and Fire without Magic. And one of them, good people... Is, is, is looking at me with a blush right now. Okay, so first, I, I should put this out, and, and I feel like you're going to say the same thing. Well, maybe you won't, but and you'll be wrong if you, if you don't. But maybe you'll say the same thing, but I think that if you remove any of these aspects from the series, it's not A Song of Ice and Fire. I mean, yeah. there are definitely things that I enjoy reading and thinking about and writing about and talking about more than other things, but that's just preference sake. Like, I wouldn't remove magic, politics, battles, or myth and legend, myths and legends from A Song of Ice and Fire. I wouldn't remove any of that stuff because it's it's all a part of George's world and every single aspect kind of feeds into the different aspects. I mean, so as, as someone pointed out to me, like, the thing is like battles, right? We know the Battle of Ice which is set to be one of the two battles that starts the Winds of Winter, will likely have a strong magical component because Bram seems to be skin-changing the ravens around Stannis' camp. And you have to imagine that those ravens are going to have an impact on the battle. Whether they're going to have an actual impact on the fighting itself, is a, we're not sure. But 
I think they do give us a possible vantage point that Bran might see the battle. We might get a perspective on a battlefield in Westeros that we've never seen before. And, you know, all of these things kind of feed together. But I, I think if you're like actually put a gun to my head and said, hey, take one thing out of A Song of Ice and Fire, I would say magic. And here's why I would say magic. As Emmett rolls his eyes, puts his hand on his chin, tapping his, his, tap, tapping his cheek with his fingers, just waiting for me to like blunder into some sort of unforced fucking air that you can exploit afterwards in our little post-debate. I see it. I see it all. I see it all from where, from where I'm sitting right here. I'm a good American. I believe in due process. So carry on, Jeff. <laughs> right. So you you'll sentence me to, to hang, but right, man. But still. You have your constitutional rights. I will say no more on the matter. Okay. So the one thing I would remove, you put a gun to my head, would be magic. And the reason I would remove magic is because when George imagined A Song of Ice and Fire, he imagined it without dragons, without magic, to be more in the vein of the Wars of the Roses, which is where you see a lot of the influence, both in this chapter and you saw it, as you guys heard Steve last week talk about it in Edward 11 in that chapter. And I think for me, what gravitates me towards the series more than anything else is the emotional connections and the different emotions that people feel about things and how they express it, either in word, deed, thought, or dreams. And magic, while it's great, I'm not so much interested in the mechanics of it. And I know what you're going to say about the mechanics of your thing that you would take out of it, which is totally understandable. I understand your wrong opinion. That's okay. But magic to me is interesting, but it's also something that Martin's talked about where he said that magic should exist in fantasy, but it should be extremely limited or else it becomes one of these things. And I, I remember this at the Jersey City event where he said... If you have just a bunch of wizards who can do anything, then like no one would do it. None of the lords would ever assemble. None of the lords would ever like fight a battle or wage war or anything like that because the wizards would just like fucking obliterate everyone. If they can like throw trees at like the armies and stuff like that, there's no reason for them to be there. And I, I, I feel George there. So while I think that magic is an absolutely essential part of A Song of Ice and Fire, if there was one thing I would remove, it would be magic. And I'm sort of happy that it won the poll because like it was going towards battles at one point. And then I, I, I OK, so I feel actually kind of bad about this. So I apologize to Matt for this. If you're listening to this at some point, I had made one simple, small reply saying that if there was one thing I would remove, it would be magic. And the poll numbers kind of shifted after that. And I feel kind of bad that I like unduly influenced the poll and made just so I'm just so influential, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Oh, you feel so bad, <laughs> do you? That was the humblest brag I've ever heard in my life. Everyone on Twitter, Jeff would like to apologize for how him stating his opinions shifts the center of gravity of the literal planet of Earth. It's a burden, not a gift. He's learning how to wield it. It's it's like an X-Men thing. It's an X-Men metaphor. Like magic. Wow. Exactly. This is Jeff's own magical power. No, those are those are all perfectly cogent arguments, sir. My primary objection is that if you take magic out of A Song of Ice and Fire, it's not fantasy anymore. It's historical fiction. Sure. And this isn't a podcast about Hillary Mantle's wolf hole and bring up the bodies, <laughs> although it probably should be as a sidebar. I would listen to that. Same. It's it's a podcast about a song of ice and fire, and I think while Martin is right to use magic in this kind of sparse, occult, spooky, largely inexplicable way that he does, that's a, a rare ingredient being used well. That's sure. that's using garlic properly so it doesn't overpower the dish, but you don't want to pull it out of the dish because then you're just left with a lump of undigestible dough. So many magical moments in the series feel to me like 
climaxes that are earned and built up too. And if you remove those, I think you'd have a lot of storylines that feel like they have a lot less payoff. I think the death of Renly works not only because it's a surprise, but because it's this weird, inexplicable surprise that no one in-universe or a reader the first time through can possibly explain how it happened. I think that gives it a little little cachet, a little weight to it. And I think it also... the. There's the magical context we've talked about before in the series where you're supposed to be constantly keeping in the back of your mind that the others are coming. Sure. Like, that goes away if you remove the the ice zombies and their army of the dead. And, of course, people have pointed out, well, you could that, – that could just be a non-magical force of some kind, a, a weather apocalypse or something. But I think it, it, it has a little more – Find it a little more fear when it's this, this awe-inspiring, horrific fantasy creation like the White Walkers. I think that that's what adds a little layer to the critique that G.R. Mormont says, where we shouldn't be this obsessed with the Iron Throne when the dead men come walking in the night. You need the dead men to come walking in the night for that to for that to work. For me personally, if I had to remove one of these layers, it would be myths and legends, and I know that's okay. going to make people like LML and Matt very unhappy. <laughs> but actually, I think Matt agreed with yeah, me I on think that he count, did. even though he loves the myths and legends. So good, Matt. Matt's got a good head on his shoulders. I mean, the story would be much lesser without Azor High and Night's yeah. King and the last hero and all these stories that are backing the main characters up and kind of giving their arc some context and meaning. And we've talked about that with regards to Fire and Blood, that there's some really enriching narrative parallels yes. that Martin is playing with, both in terms of just fun Easter eggs for readers, but also seriously developing your understanding of these archetypes and what Martin thinks about them. But... To use a cake metaphor, because why not? <laughs> what other kind of metaphor should one use? If you remove myths and legends from A Song of Ice and Fire, I think you have removed the icing from the cake. That definitely makes the cake worse. It makes mm-hmm. it stand out less, but it's still edible. For me, removing magic is just sticking your hand into the cake and moving it around and just grabbing out a chunk. <laughs> now, what's left is still technically edible, but I don't think you're going to find many people who would be willing to eat it. Fair. Something that, that I've kind of come back to again and again when I'm thinking about this question and thinking about the role of myths and legends in Song of Ice and Fire is how it makes this a very lived in world. It's 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 a place that has a feeling of history about it. It's it's Tolkien-esque in that way. And I know early in a Game of Thrones some of the kind of world building is a little wonky and George fleshes it out over time and he gets better and better at with each book. And of course, as he's done these histories now for the past seven years, or I guess technically for the past five years since the publication of The Princess and the Queen, it, it really has made A Song of Ice and Fire feel much more lived in. Like it's a place that is ex- existing in a real time in history and also with a you know, with a background that is and groundwork that is necessary for characters to build off. So that's why John can say that he always thought that he was going, that he was Darren the first Targaryen. It makes a lot more sense knowing who Darren the first Targaryen is and learning that backstory there. It makes sense why Stannis would kind of like shun and embrace the Azor high archetype that he is being thrust into by Melisandre because that archetype has power. Myths and legends have power. Magic has power too. I, I, I don't I think one of the things that I thought about was what would Bran's story be without magic, right? I, I don't think that he would have really much of a purpose of being a point of view character because he is entirely depending on magic for his 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 arc to work, like always questing after the three eyed crow, getting to the three eyed crow and learning how to skin change, how learning how to work. And then starting to see the past through the werewood visions that he has. These are all integral parts of Bran's arc. I don't know how a character like Melisandre would function without magic as well, right? I mean, her entire story is is a magical one. So, I, again, none of the, the answers are things that I would remove from A Song of Ice and Fire, but put a gun to my head, it's 
just it's magic, I guess. I mean, I don't know, man. I, I don't know. That's acceptable. You're allowed to be. I was going to say wrong, but not even wrong. You're allowed to have your opinion. Jeff was very gracious of me. How cr- Where's my medal? Yes, uh, I'll be. I'll give it to you right after this podcast. Good, good, perfect. Yeah, I mean, it's and you said you're not, you know, specifically interested in the mechanics of magic in and of themselves, and that's perfectly fair. And like I said, I think Martin is right to not reduce everything to mana classes, where everything is very specific and rigid, and anyone can just learn it. But purely from an aesthetic standpoint, there's just such vivid, beautiful things you can do with language describing magical events. Yeah. That I just wouldn't want replaced. Like, just the way Danny describes going into the fire and seeing all these colorful animals just pop out of the flames in her visions. Or Davos observing as Melisandre gives birth to the shadow baby and her shining and panting and the thing pulling itself out of her. Or, like, this the sheer ridiculous awesomeness of when Melisandre sets that eagle on fire yes. at the wall. And it just comes out of nowhere and suddenly it's burning up against the sky. And you're just like, <laughs> what? Yes! Amazing! So you'd have to necessarily remove those things, and I would hate to lose them. But those are those are just moments, and the story could structurally survive them. And I think you make a great point about how the myths and legends do make it feel lived in. I do love in stories the sense that you're only getting a snapshot of yes. a, a time and place in this world, and that the world existed before the first page and will exist after the last one, and you're just getting your little window. I think that's something that pretty much all fiction of any kind should aspire to at some level. Agreed. And I think I think a song of ice and fire does unusually well. So I would not I would not want to lose that. But you know, moving beyond this interesting and uh, controversial question, we hope that you guys have enjoyed. The, uh, our offering with uh, Joanna Robinson, our holiday episode. We hope you guys are having a very Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah and Kwanzaa and all the things that you might be celebrating. If you're just celebrating Life Day or Winter Solstice, that's also fine too. So we hope you guys enjoyed our episode with Joanna. And uh, it was a lot of fun to record and we love the feedback we're getting so far. Yeah, uh, thank you again so much to Joanna for coming on. We had a great time recording that episode and look forward to hearing more about from you guys about what you think of it. And if you've been following along with her ongoing Fire and Blood Volume 1 saga, we got uh, the next part of our Patreon special episodes on Fire and Blood Volume 1, which will be coming out on uh, Thursday, December 27th. So if you're not a patron already, go over to patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-I-F, and check that out. Patrons of $5 or above a month get access to at least one special episode a month, and we're going to be doing Fire and Blood uh, not only in November, which we've already done, and December this month, but in January for part three. <laughs> so you get access to lots of Fire and Blood goodness over at patreon.com forward slash not a cast A-S-O-I-A-F. Yeah, we hope you guys have not tired of Fire and Blood yet. I haven't. I've, I've, I'm still actually reading it right now as we're recording this on the 17th of December. I, I actually stopped because I was getting into the egg on the third stuff and I kind of backtracked to get back into uh, the Dance of the Dragons. So we're able to provide as, as good of an episode as possible for, for y'all at the end of this month. So we appreciate you guys' support and we hope that you guys are enjoying our Fire and Blood episodes. Let us, of course, always know via patreon.com forward slash notcastasof if you like our stuff or if you don't like our stuff, let us know that too. We're always open to criticism, critique, and we're always open to improvement. But as we said last week, this is not a Fire and Blood episode. This is an episode about um, Eddard, Eddard Stark, right? We're on Eddard 12. You're just going to try this every time, Jeff. <laughs> you know, folks, something I realized is that with Sansa 1, we did it at this, a combined episode with that and Eddard 3. So Jeff had that to fall oh, back yes. on. And with Sansa 2, we had a, a guest, Chloe, from Girls Gone Cannon. So Jeff had that to fall back on. For this, Jeff's just alone with me and Sansa Stark. Uh, Pity him, man. That's a rough corner for him to be in. Uh, it's, yeah, it's fine, though. It's, it's, it's a great chapter 
He's made progress, arcs, redemption, motifs. I knew he could do it. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm making so much progress in my life. But yes, it, this is a Sansa chapter. Emmett's giving me the look like I have to do the synopsis. <sighs> you do. So here is the synopsis for A Game of Thrones, Sansa 3. Sansa Stark and Jane Poole enjoy a dinner alone. As Arya is off at her dancing lesson, Septim Mordain's feet are hurting and Ned is having a bite to eat with his boys. Sansa tells Jane Poole that her father Ned wouldn't send Loras Tyrell to hunt down Gregor Clegane. It was probably his leg or something. Loras's leg? Jane asks. No, not Loras, you idiot. Her father, Ned's leg. It hurts him so much or it hurts him so much, or else he would have sent Loras. Right. Everything about what Ned was doing at King's Landing confounds Sansa. If life down here was like the songs, then Loras, the shining knight of chivalry who would have would have gone after Gregor. He looked like a hero, slim, beautiful, golden roses in his hair. And God damn it, Emmett, do I have to keep fucking doing this? Jeff, much as I love describing the luscious good looks of the Tyrell man, this is your duty and great or small, we must all do our duty. Okay, okay, fine. Anyways, Ned had refused Loras and Sansa was pretty freaking upset by that. But Mordain told Sansa that it wasn't her place to question Ned's decisions. And then Lord Creepyfinger had arrived from the shadows after probably listening to some further Seems Forever songs on vinyl. Oh, I don't know, some. I don't know, Septa. Some of her lord's father's decisions could do with a bit of questioning. The young lady is as wise as she is lovely. Ugh. We're going to have to have words about this later, but Septim Mordain is mortified that Baelish was listening and tried to cover for Sansa, but Littlefinger brushes her objections aside and asks Sansa what she would have done. When she explained about chivalry and songs, Littlefinger traces his creepy finger thumb across her chin like the grooming goddamn monster that he is before saying, Life is not a song, sweetling. You may learn that one day to your sorrow. But now it did her after Sansa didn't really feel like telling Jane about that. It made her feel uneasy. Yeah, understandable. Jane takes the Vara's role and says that Illyn Payne really should have been sent. But Sansa's not about that. Illyn was just another monster. Jane is glad that Beric went. He just seems so brave and gallant. Sansa does that whole side-eye thing of Jane. Beric was old, man. He's like 22. <laughs> An old, ancient man right? <laughs> of 22. Yeah. Uh, that makes me feel like I'm already dead. Anyway, carry on. Dude, man, I cannot even remember when I was 20. I can sort of remember when I was 22. I was drunk a lot when I was 22 years old. Anyways, Jane had been in love with Beric since the turning of the hand, but Sansa knows that Beric would never marry Jane. She was too far below his station to ever marry the daughter of a steward. But Sansa decides that it's too impolite to tell Jane, so she changes the subject. I had a dream that Joffrey would be the one to take the white heart. Yeah, this is a lie, as Sansa hadn't actually dreamed that, but she knew that calling it a dream was better. Dreams were prophetic, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, George. Again, we're seeing you here. Love the meta. More on that later. When Jane asks if Joffrey touched the white heart and did the heart no harm, Sansa replies that, no, of course not. Joffrey had shot it with an arrow and brought it back to her. <laughs> yeah, okay, cool. Awesome. But here we get an interesting note from Sansa that, okay, admittedly, Emmett, admittedly, it shows her growth. In the songs, the knights never killed magical beasts. They just went up to them and touched them and did no harm. But she knew Joffrey liked hunting, especially the killing part. All right. There, I've admitted was that. Was that so hard? A, a little bit. It was, it was a lot hard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very proud. Very proud. I appreciate that. It's, it makes my heart warm. But Sansa is certain that Joffrey had nothing to do with the death of Jory. That was Jamie, And Ned was still angry about that. It ain't fair to blame Joffrey for that, and admittedly, Sansa is right about that. That'd be like blaming Sansa for something Arya did. Almost as if reading Sansa's mind, Jane blurts out that she saw Arya recently. 
She was walking on her hands in the stables. Why was she doing that? Jane asks. Sansa says she really doesn't know why Arya does anything. She doesn't like the stables. It's the smell and all that. Sansa changes the subject again, asking if Jane wants to hear more about things about the court. Jane says, yeah, sure, why not? Sansa relates that a black brother of the Night's Watch wanted men for the Night's Watch, but he smelled bad. And Sansa always figured that the men of the Night's Watch were more like her Uncle Benjen as opposed to Yorin. Besides, the songs were always calling the men of the Night's Watch the Black Knights of the Wall. But Yorin didn't look much like a knight. Bent-backed and ugly with lice, he was gross. Sansa feels sorry for her half-brother John that he had to hang out with people like that. Ned had called for volunteers from the Red Keep to go to the Night's Watch. And of course, because this is Song of Ice and Fire, and this is a total criticism of feudalism. I keep saying that. We're going to keep getting these fucking iTunes reviews about it. This is a criticism of feudalism. <laughs> no one had come forward. So Ned had given Yoran command of the dungeons. Then, two free riders from the Doran's Marches had come forward, pledging their swords to Ned, which he had accepted. And then, are there any lemon cakes? Jane interrupts, yawning. Well, Sansa ain't, a, ain't about being interrupted, but lemon cakes do sound oh so fetching. They head down to the kitchen and they don't find any lemon cakes, but they do find a cold strawberry pie instead and they eat it giggling and gossiping. Sansa goes to sleep the night thinking that she feels as wicked as Arya. The next morning, Sansa wakes and goes to the window to watch Lord Barrick get his men ready for the march ahead to pursue Gregor's game. Sansa is pleased that the sigil bearing the direwolf of House Stark flies alongside Barrick's lightning slashed across a field of stars sigil. Sansa sees Alan and feels a bit of pride in him. He was going to be a knight one day, and he was riding side by side with the gallant Lord Barrick. Sansa heads to the Tower of the Hand to get some breakfast and sees Arya and Septimer Dane there, but the hall is empty. Where is everyone? Arya asks. They're off to behead Gregor Clegane, Sansa sighs back at Arya. And then Sansa turns to Septimer Dane and asks if they're going to, you know, put Gregor's head on his own spike at his gate or bring it back to King's Landing. Mordane is horror-struck, chiding Sansa for forgetting her courtesies. But Arya doesn't care. She asks what Gregor has done. Well, he burned down a holdfast and killed a lot of people, Sansa replies. Arya has a thought about that. Jamie Lannister murdered Jory and Heward and Will, and the Hound murdered Micah. Somebody should have beheaded them. Well, she's not wrong here, but Sansa says it's not the same. The Hound is Joffrey's sworn shield. Your butcher's boy attacked the prince. Well, shit is fucking on after that. Arya tells Sansa that she's a liar while she grips a blood orange so hard that the juice flows through her fingers. But Sansa doesn't care. Go ahead. Call me all the names you want. You won't dare when I'm married to Joffrey. You'll have to bow to me and call me your grace. <sighs> Sansa... And then Arya throws the orange at Sansa. The orange hits her full on the head and slithers down into her lap. You have juice on your face, your grace, Arya says. The juice runs all over Sansa, and her dress, her beautiful ivory silk dress is ruined. Sansa shrieks at Arya that she's horrible and that they should have killed Arya instead of Lady. Holy shit. Mordain jumps up shouting about how Ned will hear about this. She sends both girls to their rooms. They pass by Frank on their way to their rooms. When Sansa protests that it's not fair, Mordain says the matter is not up for discussion. Sansa heads off, refusing to cry. Queens don't cry in public. When she reaches her bedchamber, she throws her dress off and examines it. It's ruined. Sansa screams that she hates Arya. Worse, the orange juice has bled into her underskirt. She cries herself to sleep. At midday, Mordain wakes Sansa to bring her to her father. Sansa had been dreaming about Lady, her direwolf, and her sad, golden, knowing eyes. She had been running with her, but now that dream is gone. The memories fade. Lady was still dead. In the solar, Sansa finds Ned bent over a massive book. 
He tells her to come sit beside her, and then a moment later, Septa Mordain reappears, bringing a squirming Arya under her arms. Ned thanks Mordain for her service, and as soon as she leaves, Sansa immediately accuses Arya of starting it and recounts what happened, adding in some detail about Arya is jealous that Sansa is going to marry Joffrey, and she doesn't want to be anything to be beautiful, nice, or splendid. Enough, Sansa, Ned says, speaking for me. And then Arya shockingly states that she's sorry and begs Sansa's forgiveness? That's kind of weird. Sansa is speechless, and th- but then she asks about her dress. How would Arya fix it? Arya says, you know, I'll wash it. But Ar- Sansa retorts that the silk is ruined. Arya says, well, you know, then I'll fix the dress. Sew it or something. You? You couldn't sew a dress fit to clean the pigsties. But Ned's not here to talk to the girls about their dresses. He has an announcement. He's sending everyone back to Winterfell. Both girls are shocked, and they beg Ned not to send them back. Ned smiles tiredly and says, At last we found something you two agree on. Sansa thinks it's a punishment. She loves King's Landing, the court, the fashion, the tourneys, the mass balls, the mummer shows, and her father was taking it all away. Send Arya away! She started, father. I swear it. I'll be good. I'll be good. You'll see. Just let me stay, and I promise to be as fine and noble as courteous as the queen. Ned twitches at that, understandably so. He's not sending Sansa and Arya away for fighting, damn it. Yeah, they need to stop fighting, but they need to get the fuck out of Dodge now, because it's fucking dangerous here. His men are being killed, and Robert is neglecting rule of the realm. Arya is sullen and angry, but asks if she could take Ciro back with him. Who the fuck cares about Ciro? Sansa sort of asks. Besides, Sansa can't go. She's going to marry Joffrey. She loves him. Truly. As much as Nerys loved Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, as much as Jonquil loved Florian, she wants to be the queen and have his babies. Ned then tries a gentler approach. Yes, I understand that, Sansa, but he's going to marry her off to someone worthy of her, someone brave and gentle and strong. And Joffrey, damn it, Sansa, open your goddamn eyes. That ain't Aemon. That ain't Aemon the Dragon Knight. Well, Sansa doesn't want someone gentle, brave, or strong. She just wants Joffrey. They're going to be so happy, like in the song. She'll give him a son with golden hair. They'll be brave. A strong lion and a wolf combined is one. But Arya knows better. (laughs) Not if Joffrey's his father. He's a liar and a craven. And anyhow, he's a stag, not a lion. And then Sansa says something that will change Song of Ice and Fire forever. He's not the least bit like that old drunken king. Oh boy, it's on. Ned looks at Sansa. Out of the mouths of babes. Ned shouts for Merdane. He's still sending them back to Winterfell, of course. And if Syria wants to come too, then yeah, he can. No no worries about that. But goddammit, please don't fucking say anything about this. Okay, girls? Everyone clear on that? Yes, you, Sansa, look at me. Eyes on. Please do not run off to the queen and let her know what we're planning. Okay? Great. We're all agreed? Excellent. Good. We're good to go. Sansa cries as Mordane leads her and Arya away to their rooms. They pass by Frank again, who's still been up in his room since last summer. Mordane does her whole, I am certain your lord father knows what is best for you bit, which... <sighs> Mordane, come on. A little more effort here. Arya tries to comfort Sansa, saying that they'll sail on a ship and it'll be like an adventure, and they'll get to see Bran and Rob and Old Nan and Hodor again. But Sansa's not about that. Arya, you ought to marry Hodor. You're stupid, hairy, and ugly like him. She rushes into her room, slams the door, and then bars it. And that is a Game of Thrones Sansa 3. And look, as much as Chloe claims that I'm on a redemption journey with Sansa, and as much as mm-hmm. I think that Sansa's that Sansa's pawn to player arc is a good one, uh-huh. I am side-eyeing most of Sansa's words, thoughts, and deeds here. But it's still a 
good, not if not a great chapter here. One that, in my opinion, really gets kind of glossed over when people think about great chapters in the Song of Ice and Fire because there's not like a lot of action here. It's a lot of like place setting for things that are coming down the road, but it's really vital for progressing the plot forward and really setting the character d- dynamics for Sansa for both her future as well as kind of calling back to her story as, as it's existed in her first three chapters. What did you think, Evan? Did you love this chapter? I know you're going to say yes. That's okay. Yes, I did, but I think we should all take a moment to applaud Jeff for his courage. It's been a while since he had to do a Sansa chapter, and he got through it. There's going to be a lot more to come, buddy. I hope you're limbering up. Uh, the thing is, is, this is we're only halfway through the Sansa chapters in the Game of Thrones. Only halfway through. You literally chose to do this. This is literally something you had to have in your life. True that. Fault. True that. Seriously speaking, though, as I said with Edward Eleven, there is a kind of calm before the storm feeling to these last few King's Landing chapters before Ned goes down in the throne room and everything changes forever for his daughters. That's especially true in the case of Sansa III because of the bubble she inhabits, which is the central subject of her arc in this book. Martin is gradually deconstructing her worldview in front of her, and every chapter contributes in its own way until the axe falls with her father's death. Sansa III specifically comes around the midpoint of her storyline in the Game of Thrones, so... She's kind of in this medium place in terms of that process. The curtain is starting to fall away, but it's still flashing in front of her eyes at moments. But there are moments when she glimpses what lies past it. So the Sansa 3 is about Sansa grasping for the dreams that her worldview offered, even as they start drifting away. The way she puts it is like trying to catch the rain with her fingers. <laughs> and, and she was able to both stand up to and feel sympathy for Sandor and Sansa too, but... In this chapter, the bearer of hard truths that conflict with the stories and songs is her father. So that's a whole different dynamic for Sansa. I think you make a fantastic point in that you start to see the veil shifting from Sansa's eyes, that she is starting to see the world as it actually is. And we will talk about this, but I think it's found really well in the alleged dream that she has about Joffrey and the White Heart. We will talk about that a little bit later. But it's clear to me that we're starting to see some character growth in Sansa, that she's not just a person with her head filled with songs and believing that songs will come to life, even though... Really, if you read this this chapter on a simply surface level, it just feels like the same old Sansa all over again, thinking about the songs and how important they are and how things have to come true in the songs and everything like that. But if you take a little bit of a deeper approach to this chapter, you do start to see that the songs are having different kinds of verses in them, ones that aren't as shiny and chivalric as the ones that she's grown up listening to. And I think that's a really good turn both in Sansa's arc and again, little applause for George and writing it that way to make us to make you know Sansa's story an actual arc so I think it's good well poetically put sir and I agree this is not a chapter I would necessarily expect everyone to love the first time through because it does feel kind of samey on the surface it doesn't have those standout moments in Sansa 2 like where Sir Hugh dies right or Sandor's story or in Sansa 1 when Joffrey's attacking Micah those moments of intense bloodshed where the real world just kind of steps in and shoves its fist through this fantasy world that Sansa has created that doesn't really happen in Sansa 3 yeah it's more like the subtle quiet disappointment of her father and the lie she's telling yeah I love that stuff about the dream of the white hearts we're going to get into that at length later in the episode because that is an amazing moment uh, in Sansa's story but it's, it's more of a subtle transitional kind of chapter so you have it starting with Sansa's take on the events of Edward Eleven. It happens that night after the, those events in the court during the day. And like Varys, uh, she uh, wanted Edward to send Loras, or was wondering why Ned's not sending Loras, but for different reasons. Varys was talking about 
getting in with the Terrells and Sanchez more kind of swept up on the songs. But if you think about it, those are kind of flip sides of the same reason. Yeah. Like Varus was advising Ned to send Loris in order to access Terrell power. And as we've seen already in the hands turning, and we'll see later on in Clash and Storm, Terrell power is founded in large part on their mastery of those chivalric politics of the type that gets Sansa all swoony. Like the, the Terrells don't dress up in fancy clothes and surround themselves with flowers and emphasize their physical beauty just because they're vain. Right. They do it because those are extremely useful political tools, especially in a world which, in, in which, as Elena points out, the Terrell claim to High Garden is a little dodgy. <laughs> so seeming like you're the most gardener-esque family in the reach in terms of your, your image and your, your political displays is very significant. So it's not unrelated, Sansa's reasons and Varus's reasons. I just think they're at like... There are different parts of the audience for that kind of move. It's it's actually kind of smart politics. It, even though Sansa's filtering it through her own perspective and through the songs that she grew up listening to, like you point out that the Tyrells are very much wedded to the idea of symbol politics and how surrounding yourself with beauty, roses, and chivalry plays a political role in securing their hold on the reach, which, again, like you said, is tenuous because they, they don't really have like a thousand-year-old claim to to High Garden. That was, that was the home of the gardeners. Sansa here is grasping onto what it actually... She's, she's getting the general idea of what civil politics means, even if she's not assigning the value that some sort of cold-hearted Littlefinger-like figure is going to utilize later in Storm, or rather in A Clash of Kings, but reveals in Storm about how he used singers and mummers and these yes. different characters to influence the Tyrells to bring them to the side of the Lannisters, while also telling them the story of Joffrey's barbaric behavior. And I think that's important. I, I think that's going to be extremely important for Sansa's arc in The Winds of Winter as she combines these things. And we start to see that more than anything else in the Elaine chapter, where she is taking that cold, hard edge, realistic view of politics of bringing knights together and uniting them under a single purpose. But she's shrouding that purpose in simple politics of attorney, of a beautiful attorney, a well-run attorney, a one that attracts the chivalry of the veil to come up to her and to want to support her as well as Littlefinger. So many people, when they read Sansa chapters, they just kind of dismiss it, especially these early ones, because they're like, oh my God, this is so stupid. Like that this beautiful and she would glom onto this is just so dumb. But it's 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 not dumb, especially for a world like Westeros, which is so in incredibly and intrinsically visual. Like this is, this is the world not of, and I think I've said this maybe once or twice before, but this is not the world of intrinsic rights, of constitutions, of different ways that you derive political legitimacy and power from. This is a world where political power and legitimacy is derived from so much of the visual side of, of rule. And that's something that is important for Sansa's arc, and it's something that she is going to be combining with that kind of more cold, realistic view of politics that she gains from Littlefinger from A Storm of Swords onwards. I think we're kidding ourselves if we think we modern voters are just perfect, cold, rational automatons who don't get swept up in the romance and glamour of oh, sure. symbolic politics and perfect moments. I mean, obviously, Barack Obama was a very smart guy. He'd been preparing a long time to do what he did. But he also knew how to seize a moment and to yes. get a lot of people on his side and paying attention to him in that moment. And he knew that was going to matter every bit as much as everything in his, his, his policy proposals in terms of getting him to be the president of the United States. And Donald Trump in the opposite political direction, I think, understands that <laughs> just as well. Yes. And that it's, it's – this is part of how you get people on your side for better or worse. And yes, yeah, Sansa at this point is the audience avatar, as we've said in mm -hmm. the Sansa chapters. She is emblematic of how the Tyrells want to be seen. 
Like her reaction to Loris, the Tyrells would look at that and go, yes, exactly. That's yep. what we want to inspire. That's what we want people to think of when they see us. So it's important to have that perspective because as easy as it is for us to say, well, yeah, Santa should see right through that stuff. I think you need that as a baseline for the series. exactly. So you can measure everything else against that and exactly. as the deviations from that. The irony is, is that Gregor really is kind of a monster out of fairy tales because Martin clearly drew in large part from Legends of Bluebeard when he was creating Gregor. Mm-hmm. We were talking about in Eddard 7, I think it was, about the, the stories of Gregor and his wives disappearing. Like, that's very Bluebeard-esque. Ned actually did send a handsome hero to slay the monster. But it's Jane's crush instead of Sansa's. It's Beric Dondarrion. And he won't become the inspiring champion of the people who I consider to be one of the most heroic people in the story until he's no longer handsome, until he doesn't look like anybody Jane Poole would be interested at this point in her story, until he looks broken and kind of empty and used up by what happened to him. And interestingly, Jane Poole, when we see her again, will meet someone a lot like that, Theon. Yes. So you, you see these arcs, not just of like the songs and dreams being destroyed, but of people trying to hold on to those values even after that process happens, which is, I think, really inspiring. Like when Sansa sees those knights right off, as you were saying, and thinks of them as a song come to life. And of course, those men will become the nucleus of the Brotherhood without banners, including a singer, Thomas Sevens. And he sings his romantic songs, but he also memorializes Alan of Winterfell, who, as Sansa said, wanted to be a knight. So yeah, I think <laughs> there's that image versus reality theme we've been talking about. But I want to emphasize that the tone of it is, is very much not... Yeah, that's what you get, Sansa, for believing in those lies. Like, that's how Cersei talks about it. Right. But that's not how we're supposed to be reacting to it. We're supposed to have, I think, this this real sadness for when these dreams and visions fall apart. Even if we can get frustrated with Sansa in the moment for not seeing through it. I think that the tone of that dream falling apart is not karmic. It's not gotcha. It's very tragic. Yeah, and I, I feel like that there's a, a fan... There's a vein in fandom which looks at Sansa's arc as her being justly punished for believing these stories. And I think that's not, and, and I, I, I could say with hundred percent certainty, that's not Martin's intent here is to be like, ah, Sansa, you believe that songs are awesome and look at how it all turned out. Ha ha. This is what you get for believing in songs. Now, as we did, as we have talked about in, you know, the Catlin chapter at the end of the crossroads, Martin has a thing about, you know, singers being pieces of shit, which is really interesting kind of dynamic going on here. But the chivalry and the nobility that is emphasized in the songs has a real appeal. But for Sansa, she has to learn that chivalry and nobility aren't just found in personal appearance, although that is very important, especially in, in symbol politics, as I talked about before. But she also has to see it in the, like the form of someone like Yorin, who we will be talking about in a, in a few minutes here, and how Yorin is ugly, bent back, hunched back, smells bad, probably hasn't took, taken a bath in months but what does he do in A Clash of Kings, right? He's the guy who saves Arya and secures her and gets her out of King's Landing and then defends her despite the fact that he's not a romantic chivalric knight. He's a black brother of the Night's Watch, but he's the guy who's actually trying to save innocence. He's trying to preserve the lives of people that he both cares about, but also people that are under his charge. And, you know, there is, I don't know, there, there's... Sometimes, like, you get this idea from, like, Jamie Lannister, who's, like, this beautiful golden knight that it's kind of contrast with someone like Yorin because his actions seem and are so villainous early in the books, and he kind of has some more heroic actions as he progresses forward. But again, when does he have those heroic actions and moments? It's after he loses his hand when he's filthy and disgusting and ugly. Now, he's no longer this guy of beauty from the songs. He's... He, he looks like a villain, and that's when he starts acting more heroically. And 
I don't think that's 100% accurate for all the characters in A Song of Ice and Fire, but I think you bring up the great point about Theon and Jane, how Theon goes from being this incredibly handsome dude to then being horribly marred and maimed by Ramsay, and then acting heroically in the form of saving Jane Poole from from Ramsay at the end of A Dance of Dragons. Uh, agreed. I mean, the response to your dreams being shattered and the world not turning out how you thought it was and the values, the songs and stories instilled in you not being lived up to by institutions and powerful people. The response to that, the proper response to that is not to just, just become a cynic. Right. And you know Martin thinks that way because then Littlefinger shows up <laughs> in this chapter. And Littlefinger proves that point, that the response to that is not to say, well, screw everything and everyone. She explains what she thinks about heroes and monsters and how that's why she wanted to send Loras off after Gregor. And he chuckles because, of course, that's how he used to think. Back when he challenged the heir to Winterfell to a duel... This is how Peter Baelish thought. Right. And now he's, he's touching her face, which is just, he's moving like even close. It was bad enough when he was touching her hair in Sansa 2. And now he's just moving even closer than that. And he's insisting that life is not a song, which we, of course, took for the title of this episode. And this is a critical moment because it gets at how Littlefinger's cynicism is not just incidental to his character. It's what's motivating the entire conspiracy. It's the reason he's doing all this. Like, I'm sure Littlefinger also just enjoys being in power and being yeah. able to tell people what to do and having nice things. I'm sure he enjoys that, but that's not his primary motivation. His primary, motiv- primary motivation is to screw over houses Stark, Aaron, and Tully in any way he possibly can. And that is because they were the ones that, in his mind, broke that relationship to the songs and stories. So this, this is a warning sign for Sansa. Like this is, this is what happens if you get too disillusioned by losing out on the songs and the story. So I think you can see Martin saying, yes, Sansa needs to see through them, but she doesn't need to see so far through them that she comes out the other side like Littlefinger. The other thing I think is really interesting, too, is that Littlefinger plays as a cynic here, and maybe he even believes it in this, that he is being incredibly cynical here. But what is he doing if not attempting to recreate his relationship with Catelyn Stark, the one who got away, so to speak? But as, as we talked about in Catelyn 7, like Littlefinger is very much in the role of attempting to recreate this very childlike fantasy, albeit he's projecting Catelyn Stark seemingly onto an 11-year-old. That's a really excellent point, Jeff, because it's this that's the weird, terrifying mixture of Littlefinger, is that he the way he has seized power is very adult and cynical and speaks to his distaste for Westerosi norms, but the motivation and the desire is still very childish, especially in regards to how he, as Martin has said, kind of goes back and forth between thinking of Sansa as his daughter by Cat yeah. or by Catelyn Young that he can have back. Like That speaks to a man who really can't decide whether he's ready to be an adult or whether he's just mentally still stuck at River Run at age 14. Yeah. What makes him so unsympathetic here, I think, is that he's not trying to warn Sansa away from this potential sorrow that he's yes. talking about. Quite the contrary. As we see unfold throughout A Clash of Kings and A Storm of Swords, he wants her to suffer this lesson so she'll be more amenable to him and his worldview. He wants her to suffer. He wants her to feel cynical and alienated and hate everything and everyone because then maybe she'll listen to him. And that's compared to when Catelyn talks about the Knights of Summer when she gets to Renly's camp in A Clash of Kings. There's that same sense that, oh, you young people, you're caught up with your head in the clouds and the songs and stories, and you're going to have a hard fall when you realize in the morning that that's not the way the world works. But when Catelyn's talking about that, she's clearly very sad. Like, she feels bad for these young people, and she's thinking probably of herself in the days before Robert's Rebellion and wanting to go back to those days, kind of, but knowing how superficial her, her perspective was, and she really feels for them, and... She, you can sense her wanting, wanting the best for them in her kind of mother, her rueful mother way that she has. 
And that's just not here with Littlefinger at all. He's speaking with such glee to Sansa about the sorrow that's going to befall her. Cold, hard manipulation is all that's left of Peter Baelish, the young romantic fool. And like I said, this is a warning sign for Sansa. This is what she has to not become after her mm-hmm. own dreams shatter. All of this, though, is being told in the context of Sansa's story to Jane afterwards. And we do kind of get some interesting moments here where we get some kind of, call them interrupts, so to speak, where the subject kind of changes or... Jane has an idea, and that's kind of an interesting portion of this chapter is because we finally get to see Sansa and Jane interacting as friends for the first time in all of A Song of Ice and Fire. Yeah, I love the structure of the first half of this chapter. It is very interesting because Martin doesn't necessarily need to tell it this way. He could just, like, cut to Sansa's POV during those events. He's done similar kind of, you know, parallel chapters at the same time before, like with the Blackwater. It's interesting because it puts Sansa in the driver's seat for the first time in terms of a story. Mm-hmm. Like, this is a story she's telling. For the first time, she's not the listener to the story. She's, I mean, it's, you know, it's very small scale. It's just to her friend about the events of the day. It's not a grand saga she's singing before the court. <laughs> but it puts her in the position of author, and she uses that position in some kind of interesting ways. Most of all, you get that, that lie about the White Heart, which is just hysterical to me, that she she has this wish that Joffrey would do this, and then she just makes it into a dream, because dreams are prophetic, everybody knows that, and that's so <laughs> hilarious, because she's now lying about what's happening in order for her story to be more like the story she loves. <laughs> which, is, you don't get a genre critique more savage than that, with, with Martin saying, here, this is what fantasy looks like. There's, they're just lies to live up to these ideas you're, you've inherited as being good. Hmm not actual truths and they're not connected to anything they're not grounded in reality this is just something Sansa wants so she's made up a destiny for it it's a critique of how prophecies and magic elements often work in stories like this that it's just kind of wish fulfillment on part of the character on the part of the audience and it it doesn't actually as we were saying earlier in the episode it doesn't feel like it's advancing the plot in any interesting ways but it's just there as a convenient narrative shortcut and I, I love that yeah, this is how Sansa kind of approaches stories. It's like, you know what, that, 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 that part doesn't fit my image of it. And that really should let her know that, hey, maybe the songs and stories you love were made the same way as this. Maybe the people who wrote the Florida and Jonquil stuff was like, there's some inconvenient rapey elements to this. I'm not going to mention that in my particular song. Or the stuff about Eamon the Dragon Knight and kind of all of the consequences of his possible romantic liaison with his sister, the Queen Neris. Like, the songs don't really, you know, we're not going to mention that part. Like, Sansa, this is what all those people did, what you're doing right here. So that's why you can't take the songs and stories on first blush, because they're edited to suit the needs of the author. Yeah, and I think, like, this is actually a point where Sansa is making a conscious decision. She's consciously realizing that the songs aren't necessarily true and my own story has to reflect the song so I'm going to consciously embed a lie into a story and that is really an interesting turn for Sansa because you know as much as like we we were praising Sansa here we do have to like kind of like recognize that you know she's in this this point where she's still wanting to be in a story where she still thinks her life is a storybook song that she's that'll be sung about at some point later on down the road and yeah, I love your point about how uh, how some of the the aspects of some of the songs that she really loves, the Jonquil and, and Florian story, uh, Nerys and Nerys and Aemon the Dragon Knight have some troubling aspects to them. 
that were probably also kind of airbrushed out, that were edited out to ensure that they met the narrative structure that these singers wanted to sing, because who wants to sing about the potential rape and sexual assault that, you know, Florian Jonquil, was, that was in, in part of Florian Jonquil's story, who wants to sing about that, well, maybe Daron II is actually Aemon the Dragonite's son, and Aemon the Dragonite was not so chaste and, and chivalrous as, as he appears in these songs, and, you know, he maybe broke his vows to sleep with his brother's wife, and do we really want to have this in a song? No, I think we're just going to kind of, you know, we're just going to cut, cut that part <laughs> of it out. Giant rubber eraser. Yeah, and to be very clear, like, the problem with Sansa's worldview is not that she likes pretty things or that she's into exciting epic stories. The problem is that she doesn't realize she's being lied to. Yes. I think she gradually gets to that position over the course of the series where she wants to live up to those values while dealing with a world that doesn't reflect them. I think characters like Sandor and Littlefinger offer her paths, mostly bad ones, in terms of how to deal with that process. But that's, that's the process she's on. And I love what you said about Yorin playing into that because of Yorin, you know, Yorin being smelly and grouchy doesn't prevent him from being a hero. Right. And the point of Yorin is not sees, you know, songs are never sung about Yorin, therefore songs suck. No, the point is, hey, songs should be sung about Yorin. And this is one of them because it's called hmm. A Song of Ice and Fire. Exactly. So Yorin is in fact in this song. So it's, it's not, a, not tearing down those forms so much as kind of reframing what the point is and what what the values you're supposed to take away from them are. And yeah, I agree though. Sansa early in this story isn't quite getting there, but like I said, the veil is kind of shifting. Mm-hmm. I love that she can't pretend to herself that Joffrey would just touch the White Heart. <laughs> the White Heart is a very kind of Arthurian symbol, a symbol of innocence and the great quest and the hunt. But yeah, a lot of fantasy characters and a lot of you know, characters in chivalric legends are just so in tune with nature and life that they just touch the, the deer and the deer acknowledges as, him as the king. And I love that Sansa can't even pretend to herself. Like, no, Joffrey would kill it. He'd kill it dead. <laughs> He'd cut off the head and bring it to me. Yep, that's my boy. Like, again, it's like she's starting to notice just a little bit. That doesn't sync up with Joffrey. Right. <laughs> Joffrey's not that guy in the songs. But it's not, it's not quite enough at this point to break, break her off entirely. I get frustration with that as a reader, but I think it works so well because it's so painstaking and it's just bit by bit. Yeah. Sansa's not quite where she was in her first chapter, but she's not even close to all the way yet. No, she's not all the way there yet, but I think it is a, a fantastic point that despite her being not being all the way, that she has the ability to recognize people. She's starting to be able to read people for who they are, not for how they present. The, the thing I remember, I think most about this is how... Joffrey is introduced in Sansa's first chapter as being beautiful and glorious with wonderful, luscious lips. And then in Sansa's final chapters, what does she call his lips? Like worm lips? They look like two worms against yeah. each other. Like she's I starting. Love that line. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's a fantastic, great line that demonstrates that Sansa's worldview has shifted, that she's starting to see the reality behind the people, that the beauty and the magic that they seem to present in their physical appearance does not always reflect true beauty underneath that there's a lot of ugliness there and for Joffrey it's pretty much all ugliness and I, I love that that she then projects that to me at the end of her story in, in a Game of Thrones that he now looks ugly he his physical his inner ugliness is reflecting his out is being reflected in Sansa's perception of his outward beauty I think that's great but of course we're in Sansa 3 and this isn't Sansa 6 yet so she still has to kind of get there and I think you make a great point that it's like painstaking of like moment by moment as we progress in Sansa's arc she is starting to recognize the reality but she has to like not just kind of like come to this come to Jesus moment in the middle of the narrative and be like oh my god Joffrey's a monster you know that doesn't make 
good storytelling. It doesn't make good narrative sense for Martin to do that this soon. It has to be an arc. I'm going to keep repeating that over and over again. It has to be an arc. Damn straight. And what I think is interesting is that it's not that Sansa doesn't realize there's going to be bloodshed because she's kind of adorably fine with that. Like, I love the moment when she asks Septa Mordain, Septa, will they bring back Gregor's head on a spike for us to see? And like, she's just like so bright eyed and bushy tailed about it. And it's, it's not that she doesn't realize that that's how this is going to end. It's right. that she, she's, she thinks she's fine with that because she doesn't know what it looks like. She doesn't. She doesn't. She's never seen a head on a spike, although she will soon. Yeah. So she's not connected with the kind of intimacy and horror of that. You know, you see it when she's sent to her room for squabbling with Arya, and she has this dream of Lady, and it's the saddest thing. Like she said, for a moment, it was, it was as if the direwolf was there in the room, looking at her with those golden eyes, sad and knowing. Lady was with her, and they were running together, and trying to remember was like trying to catch the ring with her fingers. That line <laughs> I said earlier. The dream faded, and Lady was dead again. That sentence right there for me sums up Sansa's arc in A Game of Thrones perfectly. The dream faded and Lady was dead again. Because, of yeah. course, as we've said before, naming Sansa's direwolf Lady makes her a symbol of all of Sansa's dreams. Sansa's dream is to be a lady, to be at court, to be among all these these fancy, beautiful people, to wear the dresses and see the masked balls, as you were saying. And then the wolf who symbolizes all that is brutally executed. Yeah. So that's, that sums up how Sansa's dream kind of falls apart. Again, it's something she's lost. It's... It's something being taken away from her. And even as we see through that dream, there is still an intense sense of sorrow in that loss because, of course, it's being represented by an adorable wolf who we didn't want right. to see killed. No. No, no one wants to see the wolf die. No one wants to see the animals die in the story. And it it's, it, it breaks it, Sansa's heart. It makes us feel sad. And Sansa remembering Lady and always kind of keeping that emotional connection to Lady just really is is devastating and it's it's devastating for Sansa that she's in the process of losing her ladyhood if you want to call it that and at least in form of of the king's landing ladyhood and and, and at the same time you know it it makes sense why she's so upset when Ned has an important announcement to make to her and Arya when they're finally together in the room Again, I sympathize with people who are not necessarily on board with Sansa the first time through with this chapter because Sansa is a person who is in the middle of realizing that the way she thought about things was wrong, but she doesn't want to admit that. And yeah. that's not a very sympathetic position to be in. It is, however, a very relatable position to be in. We've all been there when like a huge foundation of what, how we thought about things was chipped away at a bit. And we're like, no, no, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to think about that. <laughs> I'm not going to think about the fact that Cersei had my wolf killed. Cersei is kind and beautiful. Like, right. an understandable thing when the alternative is deciding that everything you believe is wrong. Like, that's just a difficult thing to embrace, especially if you're a kid. So I th that's the position Sansa's in. And the person threatening to take it all away from her now is her dad, the person she trusts and loves. Yeah. She loved King's Landing, the pageantry of the court, the high lords and ladies in their velvets and silks and gemstones, the great city with all its people. The tournament had been the most magical time of her whole life. Again, she's mentally excising the part where Sir Hugh died <laughs> and Sandor exactly. terrified her because she doesn't want to lose this dream. And there was so much she had not seen yet. Harvest feasts and masked balls and mummer shows. She could not bear the thought of losing it all. And then a little later in the chapter, they were going to take it all away. The tournaments and the court and her prince, everything. They were going to send her back to the bleak gray walls of Winterfell and lock her up forever. Her life was over before it had begun. <laughs> like you were suggesting, I think part of Sansa's desperation here is that she kind of knows at some level that this is all bullshit. That's why she's so desperate, because she really doesn't want to have to face that. So the more it crumbles, the more desperate she is to hold on to what she's got left. And childish, yes, but also very human. Who among us hasn't been like, I don't know, I mean... Your parents move across the country and they take you with you and you're like, my life is over when you're eight or nine or 10 years old, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. 
these this is a very realistic telling of what childhood is like. And I, again, maybe I'm speaking for myself more than anything else, speaking to my past self from a few years ago. You know, Sansa's 11 years old. She's still a child. Martin is writing Sansa to be a realistic child here. She has unrealistic ideas and expectations of what life is going to bring her. She thinks that life is should be a song, the same way that you or I had expectations we were going to be a firefighter or we were going to be the president of the United States or an astronaut, things that are not likely for many of us you know we <laughs> True. we exist we exist in in, a, in an adult world where our expectations and our lives are not for most of us are not going the way that we thought they were going to go and you could really understand Sansa's like hurt and her sadness at potentially losing all of this because this is this is her life being taken the life that she wants being taken from her and yeah, that editing process, as you called it, is hugely significant here because Sansa is grounding her appeal to Ned in terms of wanting to stay and wanting life to be like the songs. As she says, I love him as much as Queen Nerys loved Prince Aemon the Dragon Knight, as much as Jonquil loves Sir Florian. Now, of course, Sansa did not study the history of Queen Nerys and Aemon the Dragon Knight. <laughs> she, she didn't learn about it from Maester Lewin. I think for the most part, it's safe to say she learned about it from yes. songs and stories. And the same with Jonquil and Florian. But again, she inadvertently reveals how hollow this is in that... That great line, Ned says, no, Joffrey is not brave and gentle like Aemon the Dragon Knight. Sansa says, I don't want someone brave and gentle. I want him, which is on one level just a wonderful <laughs> child logic, self-negating line. But yes, it's it's really important because the reason you would sing about someone like Aemon the Dragon Knight, ideally, is because he's brave and gentle, right? That's what should make yes. you worthy of being the subject of a song, is being a good person to the people you encounter in life and being courageous and being kind. But... What Sansa is kind of revealing with that verbal slip of the tongue is that it's easy to lose those values. It's easier for the songs to become unmoored from those values and just become existing for their own sake. And the, the yeah. flashing colors and beauty in the songs no longer represents inner goodness. It's just flashing color and beauty with no substance behind it, as we will get into at length when we get to Renly, <laughs> who is a very, very crucial character to these, these kind of debates. I think the argument Martin is making is, yes, sing about people. Have your great romantic myths, but the people you should sing about and idolize are people who do good, people who are brave, people who are gentle, not just not people who are just the person you want because they're shining and golden. And Sansa should want someone brave and gentle. And I'm not, like, coming down harsh on her for being a child <laughs> and wanting someone pretty. Like, that's, again, that's universal. But in terms of, as you say, where she wants to end up in her arc, by the time we get to her as an adult, I think she's going to have have deeper values than this and, and realize that she that brave and gentle are in fact the traits she should be looking for and you know and all all of that kind of slip of the tongue stuff though leads up to her giving away the truth about Joffrey <laughs> which again I love how Martin structures this that it's Sansa Sansa of all people who gives this away the one who has no idea what she's really saying that that from the mouth of babes argument is so great because the truth that Sansa is accidentally conveying is the ultimate blow to her worldview. That her shining prince is the product of incest. That the beautiful yeah. queen cheated on the king. That this whole edifice is rotten and going to crumble. But she's saying it in the moment where she's trying to stick up for her her glorious song of future. I'm going to live with my perfect golden prince. <laughs> He's not the least bit like that drunken old king and has no idea how <laughs> important that is. That's just brilliantly written. Oh my gosh, yeah. That's one of my favorite reveals. And they did it so well in Game of Thrones Season 1 where they have... Uh, I think too, I think they, they frame that scene, Martin frames that scene exceptionally well because we have Ned already sitting 
over that giant book that he got from that idiot Grand Maester Pycelle yep. about the lineages and histories of the Seven Kingdoms and the Great Ladies and that awful fucking title that the Maester gave that book, which we talked about a little bit in Eddard Six. But, you know, here it's just great framing that Ned is already sitting over this. So it's already in his mind when he talks with Arya and Sansa. And then when they have this spat between Arya and Sansa about who Joffrey actually is, and then Sansa reveals it inadvertently. It's such a great moment. And then of course, Ned's out of the mouth. The babes is, is great too, because again, we're seeing Martin here knowing his Bible a little bit, because that does come from Psalm 8, 2, which reads out of the mouth, of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength. So, uh, again, Martin is well-read, and that's uh, an important point that Martin has read things that he doesn't necessarily even believe, like the Bible necessarily. So, it's great. It's Ned learning that, learning the truth about Joffrey's parentage, and as Ned will say in the next chapter, incorrectly, the secret for why John Aaron died. It's actually not the secret for why John Aaron died, but that's okay. Um, but it, it does it does make it really Interesting. And then, of course, Ned immediately ushers the girls out, telling them, you know, here's what we're going to do, blah, 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 blah. And then, uh, yeah, just go to your rooms. We'll, we'll, we'll let you know what, what to do afterwards, which, of course, is going to have no consequence whatsoever for the for the future of Ned Stark's storyline. Not in the least. But, yeah, the end of Sansa 3, of course, very heavily sets up what will happen in Edward 12. And speaking of setting things up, that takes us to our foreshadowing and groundwork section for the episode. And there is quite a lot of little bits of foreshadowing and groundwork yeah. in this chapter that I noticed on this reread. As with previous Sansa chapters... We get foreshadowing of Ilan Payne executing Ned in front of her. The quote is, Every time she looked at Sir Ilan Payne, she shivered. He made her feel as though something dead were slivering over her naked skin. Sir Ilan's almost like a second monster. I'm glad Falba didn't pick him. <laughs> Which is great. I also love just the, the kind of wordplay with Sir Ilan's title, The King's Justice. Obviously yeah. means he's the executioner, but you could also see him as a synecdoche for the phrase, The King's Justice. So the fact that Sansa is terrified of that is, again, kind of a setup for that Joffrey isn't quite... The, the just king that she wants him to be or just imagines him to be. Now, it's, it's good to get those these two Ilan Payne foreshadowings in back-to-back chapters where Varas closes his chapter with Ilan Payne loving his work and hoping he's not too uh, sad the fact that he wasn't sent off to to chase down Gregor game. And then here we get Sansa's talking about Ilan Payne and how she's scared of him. I think it's it's great on reread to get these, these little foreshadowings because you're like, yeah, we know it's coming. But we're also seeing where Martin has been like, yeah, I am setting this shit up like multiple times so that when you come back and you reread A Song of Ice and Fire, read these lines because they are going to be important for how the story progresses and the story progresses specifically towards the downfall of Ned Stark. Yeah, I love I can just imagine Martin like rubbing his hands together with glee when he, he puts these little nuggets of foreshadowing in. And I do love that Sansa can't really explain why Ellen Payne frightens her so much. Like, <laughs> she comes up with a reason for everyone else. Like, you know, Yorn is ugly and smelly and Littlefinger's touching me. But Ellen Payne just freaks her out and she can't explain why. And I like that because Ellen Payne is not the person who decides that Ned Stark dies. He doesn't make the political decision. He's just, he's kind of the instrument and he's just the avatar of death he's more stained in right. like symbolically for the feeling of death than he is anything else so it's very appropriate that Sansa is just freaked out by him like horror movie kind of way where it's just more about the feeling and the tone and speaking of that kind of feeling <laughs> and tone yeah all the talk about head on heads on spikes in this chapter will pay off for Sansa in the most hideous fashion when you get to the end of this book and that is that's one of the more kind of brutal deconstruction moments that she was talking so gleefully about so Gregor's head on a spike in this chapter and then has to look at her own yeah. father's head at the end of a Game of Thrones you know, as you said before, she's kind of like looking at it from a childlike vantage point that she's like, oh, they're going to bring his head back. That'd be awesome, right? Well, that'd be wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. 
And then when she actually gets to see this in reality, and she sees the heads of Septim Ordain and Ned Stark up on the gates of King's Landing, it's uh, up on the gates of the Red Keep. It's 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 a horrifying thing. But I, I do like that she doesn't turn away. And I'm not. I, I have to reread Sansa Six, but I do like in the show how Sansa. It's it's the start of her defiance of Joffrey's. Like, do I have to keep looking? Can I can I stop? Like, when when, yeah. when when's a good time to stop? Right now. How long do I have and, to look? I think she says. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. She's she's she can't openly defy him, but she can deny him his fun. Because then, like, yeah, Jack Leeson gets this like disappointed look on his face when she says that. It's like, oh, this isn't as enjoyable as I thought it would be, and that's something that Sansa can take away from him, which is really powerful. Indeed. That's an interesting thing I like about reading Sansa's stories of all these parallel events, like stuff that happens in her first few chapters get echoed in a very distorted fashion later on, just as a way of reflecting how she's changed and what she's lost. Like the way she flings her dress into the hearth from the stain from Arya's uh, blood orange because of a, quote, blotchy red stain. That's very similar to what will happen in The Clash of Kings when her first period causes her to try to burn the evidence, lest she be forcefully married off to Joffrey. She's also burning her clothes. It's that same red focus on a red stain. And that's interesting because... What's freaking her out in this chapter is that she might not have that perfect pretty dress for when she's together with her perfect Prince Joffrey. And then by the time you get to Clash of Kings, she wants to destroy it because she understands who Joffrey is and wants nothing right. to do with him anymore. So it's the same imagery, but her the context is completely different, which reflects just her change as a character between those two books. I do also like the that Martin goes back over and over again to the Blood Orange, mm-hmm. both in Sansa's storyline, also in Dorne specifically too, when you get to Ario Hota's chapters in, in, in A Feast for Crows. And I, they symbolize so many so many things in the story. Um, for Dorne, it's obviously the overripe oranges are falling to the ground and exploding, which is not at all uh, pretending to anything bad happening in the Dorne storyline or to Dorne no, Hotel whatsoever. not at all. Well, but yeah, but I do like how Martin utilizes multiple physical instruments to symbolize different things and different thematic aspects of the story. But on a more grounded level, we do get a, Sansa telling the story of how Yorin comes before Ned Stark and he wants, you know, his to see if anyone wants to come up to the to Castle Black and join the Night's Watch. And of course, all of the people in King's Landing are like, no, I'm not going to go up to a prison colony up on the wall. It's bloody cold up there. And I enjoy my masquerades and balls just as much as Sansa does. But so in response to that, Ned gives Yoram the pick of the dungeons to get men for the wall. And this is an interesting moment because here it's Martin seems to have an idea of what he's going to be doing in a clash of kings in mind, because this is how Yoram grabs up Jack and Biter and Rorge, who we do meet in Arya's first chapter in a clash of kings. And I think it's interesting that Martin had some sense of where his story was going and wanted to introduce the idea of Yorn having kind of introduced kind of a logical way for Yorn to get these guys to bring up to the wall. And I think that's a small detail that has major payoffs, you know, even by the end of, you know, Feast for Crows and a Dance with Dragons with Jack and Agar still existing as as uh, as as paid at, at Old Town. Yeah, I think it's interesting that if you look at the way Martin is setting up the themes of, of violence in Arya's storyline already in this first book with Sirio and then her killing the stable boy to escape. And the fact that Sirio is from Braavos, I think it, he might well have already had in mind that Arya would be interacting with uh, another character related to Braavos who would bring up yes. these same questions. And whether he had all of Jock and Hagar and the Faceless Men details worked out, who knows? As we've said, the Faceless Men are briefly mentioned in this first book, but nothing beyond that. But I agree that the fact that Martin doesn't cut off Sansa's story earlier, that he lets her get far enough in her story with <laughs> Jane to mention the Black Cells, indicates that, yeah, he already had an idea that uh, Yorin was going to grab someone plot-relevant. Indeed. 
So our discussion this week is about something that doesn't happen in Sansa 3, but afterwards. And that is that Sansa goes to Cersei with the information given in this chapter about the Stark sisters' impending departure from King's Landing. How we should take this revelation, as we learn about it, after the fact, as you say, in Sansa 4, has been a long-running subject of debate within the fandom. Oh, yeah. And passions run high as they tend to in arguments about Sansa in particular. So we thought we'd establish where we're coming from in this question. Here is George R. Martin's take. Quote, The way I see it, it is not a case of all or nothing. No single person is to blame for Ned's downfall. Sansa played a role, certainly, but it would be unfair to put all the blame on her. But it would also be unfair to exonerate her. She was not privy to all of Ned's plans regarding Stannis, the Gold Cloaks, etc. But she knew more than just that her father planned to spirit her and Arya away from King's Landing. She knew when they were to leave, on what ship, how many men would be in their escort, who would have command, where Arya was that morning, etc. All of which was useful to Cersei in planning and timing her move. (laughs) I agree with George in that Sansa did convey more information to Cersei than just we're leaving. She did give her (laughs) details, and those were important, and we shouldn't pretend otherwise. But Sansa's goal here is not to outright abandon her family for the Lannisters, as appears to have been the intent in the pitch letter. Her goal is to stay in King's Landing by appealing to royal authority over Ned's head. Her first instinct isn't actually to go to the Lannisters at all. It's to go to Robert to make this appeal to Ned, but Robert frightens her, so she goes to Cersei. And she thinks she's telling Cersei what Cersei would need to know in order to help her stay. Sansa does not realize that this is a big-picture move on her part. She's thinking of it in purely personal terms. Now, for me, the question is, should she have realized the gravity of her actions? And I think that's where you have to get into Sansa's age and her influences. Am I I hearing this correctly? Do I hear Chloe shouting, she's 11, Jeff, in the background? You are correct, Jeff. That is what she is shouting. Always, 24-7. 24-7. But, uh, and, and, you know, Chloe is absolutely right. It is really important to consider Sansa's age and her influences at the time. So when we talk about her father, Ned Stark, Ned's fault in all of this lies insofar as he makes really generalized statements that don't reach Sansa at her level. You know, he says to Sansa, the match with Joffrey was a terrible mistake. The boy is no Prince Aemon. You must believe me. You must believe me. Okay, sure. She, he is her father. That's important. It's clear that, you know, Ned is not a bad father. I mean, some people have different opinions, but a bad father, at least to the level of of father to daughter and maybe not necessarily some of the other things. And the statement that Ned is saying is a true one. But Ned's failing here is in not going beyond the generality, not explaining what he means. Consider that Sansa is already upset at Ned for not sending Loras after Gregor. Ned doesn't explain that decision to her. Instead, the void of why is filled by Septimore Dame, who I'm going to talk about in a little bit, as well as Littlefinger. And to be fair to Ned, he didn't have the chance to explain to her before these other people kind of got to her because he was busy talking with Varys down by the Iron Throne. But at the same time, Sansa isn't two years old. She needs more than a, no, sorry, Joffrey isn't aiming the Dragonite. She needs freaking reasons, man. I could say, you know, Joffrey's evil and our listening audience would immediately understand because they you know, they've read five books in A Song of Ice and Fire. They know that Joffrey is a monster. But Sansa doesn't know that yet. I mean, she has some sort of idea from the Trident. And you have to have that kind of that why thing there. And then there's Ned's argument that he'll make a better match for Sansa. Yeah, it makes sense in Ned's mind. But Ned, you got to understand that what you're saying to Sansa is that you're taking away the things that she most wants. To be the queen, to enjoy the masquerades, the balls, the chivalry, all the beautiful imagery that she's really in love with. And Ned's taking that away from her. And that's going to have a significant impact on Sansa's feelings in that. And then it's even worse with Cersei. Ned doesn't remind Sansa about Cersei's actions at the Trident. Instead, all we get is Ned's mouth twitching strangely at the mention of Cersei. 
Sansa needs more than knowing looks to understand who Cersei is and how much of a danger and threat she poses to Sansa and her entire family. Ned never had the talk with Sansa that he did with Arya back in Arya 2, where he explicitly calls out the Lannisters as their enemies, not just people we sometimes don't get along with. No, our political enemies who are not to be trusted and that we Starks have to stick together as a wolf pack against them. Mm -hmm. And he never had that conversation because that risks blowing the whole thing open. Just as Ned said with his conversation with Catelyn back when she showed up in King's Landing, I have to keep up appearances. I have to pretend nothing's wrong. I have to pretend I have not learned these horrible secrets about the queen and her family. (laughs) Sansa's part of that because, as he, Ned says in that scene, he has to keep the betrothal, betrothal within, with Sansa and Joffrey to keep up those appearances. So Sansa has to be clutching at Joffrey's biceps and cooing at him, or the Lannisters will kind of get a sense that something is wrong. Yeah. So Sansa's being kind of used as a sacrificial lamb here, and she's being put in this position, this horrible position that she doesn't know about and can't know about. So I, I understand to a certain extent why Ned isn't being completely honest with her here, but also I don't. He's that just leaves Sansa in this position where she feels like her whole life is being stripped away for reasons she can't understand. As with Ariane, keeping the princess in the tower, just ignorant of the real plans, is only a short-term solution. Eventually, when she decides she wants to run her own life, it's just going to lead to more problems. You have to trust. At some point, you have to trust them. Who knows whether yeah. Ned needed to do it then? But at some point, you have to. Yeah, I mean that's the uh, the argument we're going to have. Uh someday down the road for in a storm of swords when uh for a completely different topic but it's the uh, the issue of uh what rob stark should have told edbier tully about his plans in the westerlands sure sure things like that but at the same time you know you you kind of understand rob and ned's points in that rob considers edbier to be a gossip and the guy who kind of walks around and tells people what's on his mind sort of thing sansa you know in this chapter there's a line in this chapter about Sansa gossiping on the stairwell with Jane Poole for a long time, eating strawberry pie. And you do understand that Ned might not want to share the full everything with her. But at the same time, he does share enough to kind of get himself in trouble. But then, you know, we have to kind of expand that lens beyond simply Ned and talk about the role of Septimer Dane here. And this is, man, this is the chapter where I begin to understand why everyone is down on September Dane. I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't like kind of her as a as a character, but she's worse than useless here, especially like her constant "your father knows best" statements to Sansa cause active resentments in her because she doesn't like back him back Ned up at any at any point. Like she's not like, well, you know, there actually is danger in King's Landing. Jory just died, you know, a week ago. Here, we, it's good to get you guys out of here because there's a lot of danger in this city and Ned's trying to do what's best for you to keep you safe. Like she's just kind of like, uh, to me, it almost reads like that. Merdane doesn't want to leave King's Landing either. So she's yeah, like, good point. Oh, well, your father knows best. And she's also crestfallen and just as disappointed as Sansa because she doesn't want to go back up to, up to Winterfell, up to the place where they keep the old gods. You know, this is a place where the seven are worshipped and she has a great sept of Baelor there and everything. And I, and I might be reading too much into Mordain's motivations here, but it doesn't. But to me, more than anything else, it reads that she's not backing Ned up here. She's allowing Sansa to feed on that resentment and allow it to build and grow. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point about Mordain. I'd never considered her motivations there, but that makes perfect sense. She'd be want to be closer to the heart of the faith of the Seven than the heart of the old gods. And yeah, it's not... You can see it earlier with Mordain in the chapter when she freaks out about Littlefinger overhearing Sansa saying something out of turn about her father. Like, I get you want to preserve the kind of courtesy, but then you need to talk to Sansa later about, okay, you know, right. here's, here's how we can actually talk about what your father is doing, and here's the proper way to do it. But otherwise, you're just giving no Sansa no tools to work with at all. So of yeah. course, so of course, she goes running to the person who will tell her 
that she can have what she wants and she can be given tools to work with. That might be selfish and shallow on Sansa's part, but it's better than the stone wall she's getting from her dad and Septim Ordain. The overall point you're making, I think it's very important, is that no one is actually reasoning with Sansa. No one is explaining anything to her. They're just telling her what to do. Everyone is basically saying like, well, this is just the way that things are. They just got to live with it sort of thing. And Sansa reacts like anyone would react when they feel like they're being thrust in a situation that is completely unreasonable. Her reaction, though, is still, I mean, I, I, I guess maybe I'll get grief here. Probably not. But it, it was wrong to inform on Ned all the same to someone that she, maybe she should have known better. And I get that George wants us to sympathize with Sansa's motivations. And he really is kind of turning that up in this chapter, a chapter that, again, as we said early on in our our discussion gets overlooked by a lot of fans here that kind of gets kind of glossed over before we get to the interesting and cool Ned stuff, which happens in the next chapter. But informing Cersei of Ned's plans was was the wrong move. And I know she's 11. I get it, Chloe. I still hear you in the background. Sansa has some understanding of who Cersei is. Hell, she even says as much in her prior POV chapter when she tries to excuse Joffrey's involvement in Lady's death, where she says, quote, at first, she thought she hated him, that is Joffrey, for what they'd done to Lady. But after Sansa had wept her eyes dry, she told herself that it had, been, it had not been Joffrey's doing. Not truly. The queen had done it. She was the one to hate. Her and Arya. <sighs> now, look, I get it, you sons of bitches. I get it. People aren't logical. Sansa's making excuses for Joffrey by throwing all the blame on Lady's death on Cersei. I get it. That is a completely rational reaction. I mean, it's a rational slash irrational reaction. Could Sansa be doing the same thing here, kind of excusing Cersei's behavior, rationalize it, get her way of staying in King's Landing and marrying Joffrey? Yeah, I mean, of, of course. That's that's how people do. And that's what makes A Song of Ice and Fire a terrific series. As I've said over and over again, Sansa has to have an arc. She won't make the right choices all the time, especially this early in her arc. She has to fuck up to move up. Perfectly said, sir. I think, again, this is... A, a liminal period in Sansa's storyline where she's kind of figuring out what's going on but not quite and that's those kind of moments are when you make your worst decisions because as I've been saying she's still trying to hold on to something she knows kind of deep down isn't working out yeah so that's definitely the least sympathetic of, of Sansa's decisions that she makes <laughs> in this book but I think it fits into her overall arc so perfectly that I don't understand throwing down the mark and say this this is when Sansa Stark proved herself to be bad not only because she's right. 11 although yeah she's a child and doesn't really fully realize the import of what she's doing. But I think it makes complete emotional sense that she'd be so terrified that not just her nice vacation, but her whole worldview is falling apart that she would want to bolster it by any means necessary. And exactly. And there are immediately negative consequences for Sansa, not necessarily directly related to the decisions she makes here, but negative consequences in terms of the system and people she's believing in. By the end of the book, as you were saying about Joffrey, she's, she's so clearly seeing through these guys that I think you have to consider this a, a step along the path, a part of that arc, as you were saying. I think seeing it purely in isolation, as some of the haters seem to do, I think does nobody any favors. I think that is an excellent way to kind of close out this episode. So, as always, thank you everyone for listening to us. We really appreciate all of the ears that you've given us, as well as the ratings. And if you have not rated us on iTunes, Google Play, and any place you find your podcasts, we do appreciate you. If you do rate us, we will we do read every single review, and uh, it does help people find us, and we do appreciate it. So, thank you. Check out our Patreon if you haven't already at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. On social media, you can hit us up on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. 
More personally, you can find me at PortQuentin on Twitter or at PortQuentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Brendan B. Fish on Twitter, Brendan B. Fish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsviceandfire.wordpress.com. So with the Christmas season coming up, we are going to take a one-week break from uh, from our analyses from Game of Thrones and celebrate Christmas and some little bit of time off here. But in two weeks' time, we'll be back as Ned Stark confronts Cersei Lannister in the Godswood in the Game of Thrones editor 12. And man, oh man, is that going to be a fun fucking chapter. Yes, we're going to have to bring our A-game for that one. All the themes we've been talking about in Sansa and Ned's chapters about the, the romance falling apart and the disillusionment from the past and being left with the kind of shitty, disappointing present. All those come to a head in Ned's conversation with Cersei once he realizes what's actually been going down. So that is arguably the central chapter of A Game of Thrones, this first book. So I'm looking forward to it, sir. Should be a lot of fun. So we hope you guys have a very Merry Christmas or holiday, whatever holiday you end up celebrating. And we will see you guys in two weeks' time. Take care, everybody.